0: Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, bringing quality care to your community through Harrisburg, Community General Osteopathic, and West Shore Hospitals. More information on our locations is available at PinnacleHealth.org.
1: Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. A survey of cancer patients conducted by the Ann B. Barsinger Cancer Institute of Lancaster General Health, Penn Medicine, found that nearly half couldn't accurately describe what stage their cancer was in or whether they were in remission or not. The survey has been recently published in a medical journal, and we're going to learn more today and why this is why this is significant. Our guest is Lancaster General Hematologist and Oncologist, Dr. Shanthi Savendran, dr. Savendran, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you. Good morning.
1: If you have a question or a comment, give us a call 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, so Dr. Savendran, a large percentage of those diagnosed with cancer can identify what stage cancer they have, and there are other findings as we'll discuss throughout the program. But why is this significant?
2: Sure. So, you know, there are Several studies in the literature uh, that demonstrate that patients um, with advanced cancers, so uh, in, incurable cancers, um, have a um, th- those, of the, those of them who have a poor understanding of their illness are more likely to choose more aggressive care at the end of life, uh, more likely to choose uh, therapies that are not necessarily going to extend their life, and choose care that's uh, not concordant with um, uh, how they want to live their life. We wanted to see if those findings were applicable to our patients here in Lancaster County um, and also see if there um, was anything new that we found with our patients. Um, And uh, so we looked at that and we said let's look at their cancer stage, their understanding of their cancer stage and whether or not um, they had uh, understood whether their cancer was active, whether they were in remission. Um, as a way to understand whether uh, understand their illness. And like you said, we found that um, about 50% of patients uh, didn't uh, have a clear understanding of what their stage is, um, and about 35% of patients didn't understand whether their cancer was active, whether they were free of cancer or in remission. Um, and so that really demonstrates that um, our uh, patients don't have, um, or a, a large number of patients don't have a good understanding of, of their illness, and um, that could lead to them making choices about their health care and their cancer care um, that um, are not uh, in line um, with their best interests.
1: Do we know why or do you know why did the mm-hmm. research ask that question or try to find the answer to that question of why they didn't understand?
2: Sure. So um, our research study uh, did not look at that and uh, specifically. We really wanted to describe um, uh, illness understanding and so um, our study is, is basically a description of, of of <laughs> what our patients um, currently understand um, so that we can then design interventions um, to h- help improve illness understanding.
1: Yeah, so the whole, whole idea behind research mm-hmm. is to see you know, what there is and then what can, can be done about it. Exactly. Uh, but, I mean, obviously you have some theories, though, sure. on why there was this lack of understanding. What are some of those theories?
2: Sure. So, you know, I, I think that could be divided um, into kind of two big ca- categories. So there Um, uh, the illness understanding on the patient part and then there is the way that the cancer team, uh, which includes physicians, um, uh, uh, relays that information to patients. So um, on the patient side of it, you know it is devastating um, to get news of, uh, about a cancer diagnosis and um, oftentimes when we tell patients that they have a diagnosis of cancer um, everything that comes after that sentence um, is really difficult to synthesize um, on that first meeting and so and and oftentimes on that first meeting is when your cancer team is telling you about um, your stage and how we are hoping to approach that cancer and what the, the goals of treatment are and a patient may still be stuck at that sentence of you have a diagnosis of cancer Um, and so I think that you know part of poor illness understanding is just that it's really difficult to synthesize all this information and that um, and uh, that uh, and that's nobody's fault it's just it's devastating.
1: Mm. You know, we have very often uh, focused on uh, cancer on on this program Mm -hmm. and our Transforming Health Project on WITF over the years has has as well. Uh, And we've said very often, in fact, uh, many people who, oncologists, doctors, those in the medical profession have said very often that it used to be. Used to be. Now those are some of the key mm-hmm. words. That when a patient heard the word cancer, they right away thought, "Okay, I'm going to die. This is a death sentence." And from what we know today, the advancements that we've made, it isn't necessarily, you know, something that is is fatal. I mean, there are there are treatments. There are actually there are people who are, if you want to say, cured, at least can be cancer free. Um, but it sounds as if, from what you're saying, that. There still are many, many people that, when they hear that cancer word, uh, I don't know if they think that uh, I'm going to die or it is so serious they just can't comprehend anything else.
2: I think you're absolutely right. I think you know we are um, in the cancer uh, research community are are moving towards trying to make many cancers as uh, chronic of a disease as we possibly can. And so, as you said, there are many cancers that um, patients. uh, can live with them chronically, there are cancers that patients are being cured from, um, and then there are still cancers that patients are not going to be cured from, and that the goals of of treating them are to, to give them as much time as we possibly can and the best quality of life. Um, but you're right, you know, you hear news about a devastating illness, and you are um, many times automatically going to jump to the worst case scenario.
1: You know, I don't know if I've ever heard anyone say we're trying to make it as chronic as possible because set usually, uh, you know, hearing that you have a chronic disease is not something you want to hear. But in this case, it's a different story, right?
2: Yeah. And, you know, sometimes what I tell my patients is, you know, people live chronically um, with diabetes and people live chronically with heart disease and can live very full uh, lives when those are well treated. And there are some cancers um, that we're moving toward that um, where we're trying to, um, if, if if we can't um, cure the, those illnesses, can we help people live the best quality of life um, as chronically as possible?
1: All right. Let's go back to uh, from the patient's point of view. Mm-hmm. Okay. The initial diagnosis, the patient has heard that uh, you have cancer, uh, can totally understand i think everyone can understand why uh you, you have so many thoughts going through your mind okay what does this mean to my life what does this mean for my family what does this mean for my kids how am i going to be treated am i going to have to go through chemotherapy all those things maybe not hearing what uh, the doctor is telling them but obviously there is more communication How is it that once you get past that first meeting that uh, there are cancer patients who still don't know what stage cancer they have?
2: Mm -hmm. So I think that's that's uh, twofold. So one is that, you know, we always encourage patients um, to do two things. So one is to always bring somebody to your appointments um, because. There's so much information, not just at that first appointment, but at subsequent appointments. So, every time they may get a scan or new blood work that tells them more about their cancer. Um, and so, that process of illness understanding um, is a process that happens uh, throughout the course of their illness. So, we always say bring somebody with you um, to remember you know, the other 90% of the things that you might miss um, during that, those conversations. Um, and then we really encourage patients to be active about their health care, active about their cancer care, ask questions, look things up, bring those questions um, to your doctor. this is a process of what we call shared decision making, where we want the patient and the cancer team to be working to find um, uh, the treatment that's best uh, for the patient. And then on the physician end, we also, you know, the physicians and the cancer team, we need to be better. You know, it's not just about Telling patients about their stage and their illness right on the first visit. It's about having continuing conversations about that um, During the entire course of the illness whether or not whether they have a curable cancer or an incurable cancer
1: All right, so let's talk about that We've discussed from the patient's point of view and I'm sure we'll have some other questions about that as well but from the physician's point of view I mean, obviously, this is not an easy, and even if you've done it many times, well, you tell me. Yeah, I'm sure you've had to deliver that news. What is that like?
2: It's not easy, you know. It's um, it's it can, it's very emotional for everybody involved. And it um, is, uh, you know, you're giving news that you know is going to um, uh, be potentially devastating for that patient. Or even if it's something that you know is a potentially curable cancer, you know how much it's going to impact their lives, impact their family, um, whether it's physically, emotionally, financially, and um, and I think that that can be uh, it can um, be part of what makes it difficult for physicians to um, have those tough conversations is is their own um, kind of emotional barriers to it.
1: So th- part of the lack of communication can be in the physician's part.
2: Correct, from the physician and the cancer team, and so that's part of what we need to do uh, to be better um, about improving illness understanding. So
1: you know i'm not asking you to uh, act out anything here but uh, typically what how do you d- deliver this
2: news mhm so um it you know oftentimes what I I do is I um, uh, tell patients you know I give them the diagnosis so this is you know that we have found that they have this cancer say breast cancer and um, and then I go through and I say you know the next um, with any cancer the first thing that we do is talk about what is the stage of cancer that you have and I go through and I say this is how we determine your stage and this is what the stage is. So, say that patient has stage four cancer, which uh, stage four breast cancer, which is considered to be currently not a curable stage of breast cancer. I say that, and I say currently stage four breast cancer is not considered to be curable, and that the goals of any treatment that we do are to try to give you as much time as we possibly can, um, while we balance your quality of life, because both of those things are really important. Um, and then we go through and we pause and we let people synthesize that information. And then we go through and we talk about um, what um, what is the average time, you know, in breast cancer. And that can be different for different um, scenarios. Um, and we talk about... Um, and then um, what the goals of, you know, uh, what possible treatment options they there are um, and taking time to pause so that patients can ask questions and, um, and just try to process as much of that information as they can. But I think the important part from the physician point of view is that that conversation can't just happen one time. Right, that conversation needs to happen repeatedly at what we call decision points during um, the course of illness. So it could be every time a patient gets new information about their cancer, every time they have a scan to assess their cancer, that um, we need to and constantly be helping patients understand their illness throughout the whole disease trajectory
1: when a patient does ask questions, what kind of questions do they normally ask?
2: Mm-hmm. Um, there's a wide, wide range. I think you you hit the nail on the head in the beginning is, am I going to die from this? You know, that's oftentimes um, what people ask, and um, how long am I going to live from this? Um, and that can be even for patients with a curable illness, right? Because like you said, sometimes we jump to the worst case scenario. Um, how can I treat this? You know, and um, you know, are there other ways that I can help myself um, so that I have the best possible chance? Mm.
1: we we'll to talk more about this in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar.
0: Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at pinnaclehealth.org/spine.
1: Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're talking about uh, a survey, and I was about to say a recent survey. This uh, this survey, this research was actually conducted in 2014, and we'll tell you why it's uh, just coming out right now in uh, just a few minutes. But it has to do with uh, cancer patients, those who've been diagnosed with cancer, and the percentage of those who don't understand the disease that they have or the uh, stage in which they are, whether they're in remission, whether they still actually have cancer or not. Our guest today is Lancaster General Hematologist and Oncologist Dr. Shanti Savendran. Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or comment on WITF Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at Smart Talk WITF. Again, that's 1-800-729-7532. To learn more about cancer, plus a deeper look at the changing tide of healthcare, check out WITF's Transforming Health. From policy to personal choices, we're taking a comprehensive look at Today's Health System online at transforminghealth.org, a partnership of WITF, Penn State Health, and WellSpan Health. Let's go to the phone. Uh, Mary Jo is in Sealance Grove. Mary Jo, you're on the air. Hello, Mary Jo, you're on the air. Okay, I don't think Mary Jo was, uh, maybe you answered her question because uh, she uh, was going to ask questions. She had an experience that she lost her husband to cancer and she also has been diagnosed and she said that uh, one of the problems is that uh, she didn't feel that the the physician had communicated the information to her. All right. so in the course of this uh, research you also found the patient I hate to keep calling the patient those who have been diagnosed with cancer who is most likely to understand uh, where they are in their cancer diagnosis what their prognosis is who is that person
2: so we found uh, in our pati- in our population of patients that um, women um, who were under the age of sixty five um, and um, and those patients who had uh, uh, more education, we're more likely uh, to understand their illness, and I think it's important for us to to um, recognize that, so that we can figure out who we need, uh, who the vulnerable populations are, um, and uh, and design interventions. Um, That target everybody, but particularly target those patients. And at Lancaster General, um, we have been uh, working towards several different initiatives to to help patients understand their illness.
1: So, women who uh, make over $60,000 and have (laughs) a college uh, degree are most likely to uh, understand. So, I don't know whether there's an opposite of that or not, but who is least likely to understand where they are?
2: Right. So, um, from our study, then, um, so men um, and. uh, and I understand that that's, that's half the population, <laughs> um, but men and then uh, patients who are um, over the age of, uh, of 65 or so older patients um, and patients who uh, may have uh, educational barriers um, or potentially language barriers were particularly vulnerable.
1: The language barrier I would see as uh, Mm -hmm. a a real issue, a real challenge. Uh, When you do have someone who English is not their first language, do you have someone there with you? Uh, I say you, meaning the oncologist, Mm -hmm. uh, the physician, uh, to explain to that person?
2: Yes, it, it is very important um, to have these conversations in a patient's primary language. And, um, and so we um, use uh, interpreter services um, as much as possible. We use um, an actual person who's in the room with us um, who's able to direct, uh, directly translate. And that's something that, um, a, a, as opposed to a family member, um, because uh, med- the medical terminology may not be something that's used in everyday language. And that's something that really I think patients should insist upon Um, as their own advocates um, to have somebody translate for them. Mm -hmm. Let's go
1: to Peter in Gettysburg. Peter, you're on the air.
3: Uh, Good morning. Good morning. I'm listening to your program, and uh, the comment that I have is that um, uh, it's very confusing um, on the part of the patient to really understand what's going on. I first learned that I had melanoma in April, And I've had two operations, and uh, I still do not know the stage of cancer that I'm in, not because I don't understand it. It's because it hasn't yet been determined and probably will not clearly know um, maybe for another month or two from what I've been told. Um, I think a patient often thinks, I know I did, Uh, that things will move along uh, very quickly. They'll be very clear. Uh, You'll know exactly uh, what you have and what the treatment is and everything. Um, But it is not quick, and uh, it's extremely confusing. Uh, The first time I met with the uh, immunotherapy uh, oncologist, he showed me a book. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, but it deals with determining for uh, physicians and surgeons the stage of uh, cancer. Must be about three or four hundred pages thick. Mm. So um, that's my comment. It's very well, confusing.
1: Well, Peter, it's, Peter, how do, how do you feel now? How's your health now?
3: I feel very good. Uh, it's my understanding that really uh, I cannot undergo any treatment uh, until everything is completely healed. It's well way, but probably till about mid-October before it's healed enough to where, if it's going to be radiation followed by immunotherapy, uh, it will take even more time before that can even start.
1: Well, the best of luck to you.
3: I appreciate that. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, is his is his mm-hmm. story typical? I mean, that uh, a lot of people expect this to be quick and all black and white, no gray areas, and it doesn't seem like that that, that occurs that often.
0: Yeah,
2: well, I want to thank Peter for that question or that comment. Um, I'm actually from Gettysburg originally, so it's nice to hear um, from somebody from um, from home. And, uh, you know, getting a diagnosis and figuring out the stage of cancer um, sometimes can be a lengthy process um, it is uh, there's um, you know some patients require surgery and multiple surgeries um, in order to get all the information that we need scans that need to be done um, for some patients that can be very quick and for some cancers that can take some time and I think the important part um, which um, I think Peter touched on is that it's important for the team um, and the patient to have transparent conversations with each, with each other to um, to um, say this is an ongoing process, right, and and um, and we're doing all of these things so that we can give you the most accurate stage and the most accurate diagnosis. The other thing that I think is important that we are that we have started to do since this research is um, provide people with what we call a tr- um, Institute of Medicine treatment care plan. And so, this is considered to be the standard of care from the Institute of Medicine. And it's um, when a patient gets a new diagnosis of their cancer, they're basically getting a plan that actually says this is the stage of your cancer, and this is um, the prognosis with and without treatment. This is actually the treatment that you're going to get. Um, this is the de- You know, these are the details of your treatment. Um, this is. Um, you know, these are the other services that we have at our center that are, um, are important. Um, have you thought about things like advanced care planning, whether you have a curable illness or an incurable illness? And that's something that um, is a conversation um, that occurs between the uh, physician and the um, the, care, the care team and the patient. Um, but it's also a fiscal document um, that the patient is getting and that we're reviewing with them. And then that is updated every time that there is a change. Um, and I think it's important for patients to have that, right? It's not just about hearing it but it's about reading about it and and having something accurate from your from your care team.
1: let take a phone call from Brenda in Mount Joy. Brenda you're on the air.
2: Thanks
4: so much and first off I'm really glad to hear about the care plan option uh, to be able to offer insight into the disease. My husband my late husband was diagnosed with a rare cancer called angiosarcoma nine years ago He passed away within four months and we spent the first few weeks at LGH in Lancaster um, watching him get sicker and just waiting for a diagnosis. And as your previous caller mentioned, sometimes that diagnosis can take a lot longer than you expect. Um, But even when we finally got it at Johns Hopkins, there were so many questions and part of it was we almost didn't want to know the answers. Yet, there we had a whole team providing us with information. I found at LGH we were really limited. It was like people weren't communicating. And as he was 36 and I was 24, no previous experience with cancer. And the only thing on Google at the time. Was you know searching angiosarcoma, all you could find was information about dogs. So that information was not pertinent, and so it was really important for us to have our healthcare providers talking to us about what this is, what this means. Having a care plan like that would have been amazing. Even today with people only 50% understanding. I just feel like there is a lack of communication that is not happening between the provider and the patient, and this is something we're paying for. You are the experts. We're asking you, and even when we don't have the questions, we expect you to provide us with that information so that we can live. Mm
1: -hmm. Hey, Brenda, very sorry to hear about your loss, and uh, uh, thank you for your phone call. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. So, yeah. how do you respond to, to Brenda? Thank
2: you, Brenda. That you know, and I, I'm sorry for your loss as well. I, um, and I appreciate your your comments because this is, um, you know, part of what this research is showing is that, um, although this is specific to Lancaster County, this is really uh, reflective of what's going on nationally, um, and um, that, um, illness understanding is is, uh, is, um, you know, poor across the country, and so the, um, care plan is is one way we're trying to improve that. Um, at our institution, um, we have um, increased um, the number of services available, which is one of the things that you mentioned. So the care team, um, which, you know, cancer medicine, I always say, is, is, is a team sport. It's not an individual sport. So there's the patient and their, their entire team, the family. But on our end, you know, there's the physician and the entire team that comes with the physician. That includes nurses, nurse navigators, um, social workers, chaplains, dietitians. um, uh, counselors, you know, a whole a whole group of people that are working to help um, support the patient and help them understand the illness. Um, the other two things that we've done, which I'm um, hopeful will help patients like um, Brenda and her and um, her late husband, are that. Um, for very complex situations like this one, where we have a rare cancer, the um, there's a lot of complex understanding and complex uh, psychosocial issues that go along with those diagnoses, and um, we now have um, physicians from palliative medicine consultants, which is a is a division of hospice and community care, um, that help uh, that see patients um, of all stages of disease, um, but particularly our advanced cancer patients um, to help them um, uh, help them understand their illness, um, especially when it's complex, help with complex symptoms um, that come along with the cancer and their cancer treatment, um, and help them um, make decisions along with the, um, the family and the oncologist, and so I'm hopeful that with um, some of these um, New things that uh, we can we can help patients just like Brenda and her husband.
1: Now, if I'm if I'm correct, I'm I hope I'm accurate here. Brenda said that this was nine years ago. Mm-hmm. What you just described, and we know this from our Transforming Health project, that that team approach is relatively new, only within the last five years. Not to say that uh, everything that she described wouldn't happen today, but it seemed to be her biggest criticism or observation was a lack of communication would that happen today
2: um so i i'm hopeful that um that we have improved upon that considerably and and you're right you know in the in the cancer um community, the team-based approach, although the concept has always been there, we haven't always had the resources um, to be able to do that. And so um, we have been very fortunate in um, in Lancaster that we've been able to um, increase those services and have a very coordinated effort um, to provide um, those services to our patients.
1: Before we take uh, phone calls, I want to kind of provide some context here. Uh, this research was done in 2014 um, you know someone hearing this program said well why are you talking about research that was done in 2014 maybe you can talk about the stages
2: sure so um, so uh, this research is uh, based on patients that were treated up until um, December 1st of 20, uh, 2014 um, and then uh, in 2015 early 2015 is when uh, myself and and the research team um, which included patients um, uh, people from Lancaster General, but also from the Mayo Clinic and American Institute um, of Research, um, started asking these questions of, um, can we look at... um, Can we look at illness understanding in our patient population? So the data collection um, went through 2015, um, and so you can only collect data from prior to 2015. Um, And then synthesis of that data, writing up the research, um, occurred in 2016, and then um, it was uh, accepted for publication in in early 2017.
1: So that's why it's been news recently, is it's it's been published in a a medical journal, correct? Okay. All right. Let's take a phone call from Rebecca in Carlisle. Rebecca, you're on the air. Good morning. Good morning.
5: So um, my husband also died of cancer after being treated at Johns Hopkins 12 years ago. So this um, is a very emotional topic. But what I wanted to say, I wanted to go back to what the doctor said about um, the importance of a medical interpreter. She said it was because of vocabulary, which is true. But it's also important because medical interpreters and judicial interpreters day in and day out um, say exactly what the doctor is saying to the patient and exactly what the patient is saying to the doctor, ideally. And whereas a family member might want to leave something out or make something sound not, um, you know, a little better than it actually is.
1: Mm. So what you're saying is that you need that, even though it may be painful, you need that information.
5: Absolutely. Mm. All right, yes. well,
1: Rebecca, thank you very much for your call. And again, I would say yeah. the same to you. Sorry for your loss your husband, too. Thank you. Uh, so the, the point she's making, you can see, because you've even mentioned it, that there are people who don't want to know, and when there's a family member in the room, which you've advised that you bring someone along with you, they may not want to uh, impart all the information as well.
2: Yeah, thank you, Rebecca. That's That was very insightful. And um you know, we, we talked about earlier in the program how emotional it is even for f- physicians in the care team to break bad news. And when we don't use an interpreter, um, and to your point, Rebecca, that somebody who is directly translating what the physician is saying, we don't do that and we rely on a family member to do that, then what we're really asking is a family member to break bad news right, to the patient, which is, um, which is a, such an emotional burden and very unfair, I think, to a, to a family member to do. And I have seen exactly what Rebecca said, where information is um, not kind of accurately um, transcribed, and, and that can um, create uh, many more problems down the road um, for the patient and their family um, in terms of how do they prepare for their illness. Mm-hmm. What kind
1: of, You know, I asked earlier the kind of questions that uh, the, the patient asks. When there is someone along with uh, the person who has been diagnosed, do they ask different questions? Uh, is it a good idea for them to ask questions?
2: Yeah. So, um, I, some of the questions are similar, are going along with things like stage, what to expect, um, what is the life expectancy, um, and sometimes the questions are are um, are different. And so, it can um, there are more questions about um, maybe finances or questions about how can the family support. Um, the patient questions about if the patient has small children or young children. You know how can they um, uh, break that news to the children? Um, how? Um, How can they just in general, you know, be as supportive as they possibly can? Um, And I think it's very important, um, like you said, not just the patient but the family um, to come in with questions because they may be thinking about questions that the patient wanted to ask but just couldn't synthesize that information at the time. Mm.
1: I would imagine it's also very helpful for emotional support as well.
2: Yes, I would agree with you. Mm,
1: that it's just someone there on their own. It may be a little too much too much to handle. Let's go to Chrissy in Lancaster. Chrissy, you're on the air.
6: Hi, Scott. Thanks so much for taking my call. Yes, you're welcome. Um, I wanted to relay just a personal story because for my family, the problem with communication came because of timeliness. Um, my mom was diagnosed with lung cancer um, in 2011, but she had had... At the pul- pulmonologist's office, um, and then she had picked her oncologist and scheduled an appointment. Unfortunately, um, the day before she was scheduled to meet with that oncologist, she was rushed to the hospital because she couldn't breathe. Um, and so she ended up in the ICU, and once she came out, they started chemo in the hospital. Um, so we didn't have time for choices or research, and we didn't even know what we were dealing with. We hadn't even received a diagnosis. So really our information came from these like hallway conversations with um, the oncologist. um, And we almost ended up feeling kind of bad for her because, you know, this was a situation that it seemed like she hadn't dealt with very often, This you know, not having a prior appointment. Um, But what we found with lung cancer that was... um, super confusing is that for the type of lung cancer she had it wasn't stage one through four or zero through four it was staged extensive versus limited and so that was even you know vocabulary that we didn't understand and so it kind of took us researching on our own and it was just you know that it was just a situation where it needed to happen and that was what it was but Um, If there had been some sort of resource or guide or, you know, a better um, something to get into our hands, it just would have been a lot more helpful for our family.
1: Chrissy, those hallway conversations, I think... I can't say every family, but many families have experienced that, and sometimes they're the worst, because you get conflicting information, and you don't know exactly what you're getting. Chrissy, thank you very much for your call. And that is not a criticism. That is sometimes, and as Chrissy described it, that was a medical emergency, Mm -hmm. and uh, sometimes that's how it happens. You hear a nurse giving some information. You hear a doctor giving information, but that sounds like... I don't know if I'd say unusual. You tell me. Is it unusual?
2: Well, I, you know, I would have to agree with Chrissy that that is um, in these emergency situations with somebody who has um, small cell lung cancer like this is a, um, it's not satisfying for anybody including, you know, the physician and the care team and certainly the patient and their family to have these um, conversations that are happening in an in, a, in an emergent fashion. and. Um, and it, it's it's still though important for the the physician and the care team to be very um, clear about um, you know all those same things that we talked about, so stage so in this case, you know the the um, um, although this cancer can be staged as a, a one through four, oftentimes, as Chrissy said, we, we use um, extensive or or limited, and it's still important for us as uh, um, as medical professionals to be really clear about what that means. That you're getting that information from us, um, whether it's an emergency situation or not, and um, and uh, I agree that. Um, being able to provide those extensive services in the hospital as well is something that um, we're always trying to improve upon And, and so that even if it's an emergency situation, although time may be more critical or of the essence, that we're still getting that information across that we need to.
1: Have you ever had patients that were about to or maybe made wrong decisions because they didn't quite understand?
2: yeah, so you know we see this and um, and there are actually some you know we there are studies both we talked about in the advanced uh, population, but you know one of the things that we looked about in our study looked at in our study is that even patients with a curable illness had a poor understanding of their stage and whether or not they actually still actively had cancer. So that means cancer survivors are unsure about whether or not, they're still living with cancer or not, which I find to be very distressing. I mean, yeah. that's that's very emotional and, and surprising. It, and I was actually very surprised by that. And and that shows us that we need to be really vigilant about um, helping that patient population um, understand um, their cancer, what the goals are, and so that they can um, live the most healthy lifestyle that they can in their survivorship. Um, But there there are some limited studies in this population that show, um, particularly in breast cancer, that patients who have a poor understanding of their illness Um, were four times more likely uh, or sorry patients who had a good understanding of their illness uh, were four times more likely to appropriately choose chemotherapy and three times more likely to appropriately choose radiation um, as opposed to the patients who didn't really understand their illness and who were not um, choosing appropriate treatment.
1: I'm assuming you're talking about mastectomy.
2: Um, and that could be anything. It could be any part of the, of the cancer treatment. So whether it's um, their breast cancer surgery, um, whether it's their chemotherapy or their radiation.
1: A couple, just a couple more questions. Uh, one of our callers mentioned this, and I plan to ask this anyway, that uh, she mentioned Google. There are so many people out there that the first thing they do after they get back from the doctors, and maybe it's appropriate, is to go online. Uh, unfortunately, not all information is accurate, not all information is quality. What challenge does that present to you as a physician?
2: Sure so I, you know I don't think that there is anything wrong with going online to look about for information about your cancer I mean it's this is part of what we're telling you to do is to be as informed as you possibly can right and so that you can ask questions but I think what's really important is that when you go to Google is then to go to the uh, to put into Google the websites that are reputable right and so going and finding information in reputable websites, um, for example, American Cancer Society, um, the National Cancer Institute, um, and there are some very reputable websites that are specific to specific diseases. That's really important because um, if you go to re- websites that are not necess- necessarily um, reputable or evidence-based, you're gonna get a lot of information um, that's not necessarily relevant to your particular cancer and can lead to more distress and possible harm. Uh,
1: I wanna thank you very much for being with us today. One final question. Uh, I know that at uh, Lancaster General, that you already have implemented some changes as a result of of these findings, but how do you want this information to be used?
2: Um, So I am hopeful that for um, patients that um, what they get out of the study is how important it is to have um, uh, transparent and ongoing conversations with um, their physician Um, and their care team um, so that they feel like they're getting all the information that they need and that their family is getting all the information that they need. Um, And I'm hopeful for the medical community um, in our area that um, we understand that um, relaying this difficult information is an ongoing process, that we should um, constantly be um, striving to find ways to improve our communication skills, um, and that we understand that um, that the patient, their family, that the physician and the care team are all working together in the best interest of the patient.
1: And that uh, is information that probably transcends even cancer. But uh, Dr. Uh, Shanti uh, Savendrin, want to thank you very much for being with us today. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR news and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar all the luggage, the coats and briefcases, the stuffed animals, books and electronics, all the stuff that people forget at airports, it all ends up in a warehouse in Harrisburg with random objects deemed objectionable by the the TSA. And you're more than welcome to buy whatever you find, kind of an airport flea market. The Department of General Services manages the sale of the stuff, which has generated $2 million in state revenue since the beginning of the program in 2004. And the reason we're talking about this this week, it's a sale. I'm not going to do go into, uh, you know, one of those uh, hardcore, uh, h- hard sell kind of commercial things, but there's a sale this week. Joining us to talk about Pennsylvania's airport yard sale is Troy Thompson. He's a spokesman for the State Department of General Services. Troy, welcome to the program. Thank you, Scott. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800- 729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Now, the first thing I want to, to clarify here, I said stuff that people forget at airports. Is it all airports in Pennsylvania, or is there just one or two, or just what?
7: Well, it, it's actually more than just the airports in Pennsylvania. We basically cover what we would call the mid-Atlantic region. Um, that would include New York, New Jersey, um, Washington, Maryland, Delaware, and Pennsylvania. And we're looking at more of your international airports and your regional airports.
1: So airports outside Pennsylvania, they actually, the stuff that is, I, I'd like to find another word other than stuff. Do you, you, what do you call it?
7: We, we just call it uh, Voluntarily Surrendered Items.
1: I like stuff better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe items. We'll go with items. Okay. The items that you collect even come from out-of-state airports. Yes,
7: they do. And and it's surprising because you wouldn't think that you would find something from JFK or LaGuardia here in Pennsylvania for sale. It, it's It's quite amazing because we have a program that can handle the volume of the items that comes in. So we basically get that stuff transported. And I just said so stuff. stuff, yeah, and uh, <laughs> and we get that stuff transported to us, and we it, it's a laborious pro- prospect. You have project, you have to really go through everything, sort it, see what can be sold, see what can't, but it ultimately winds up in our in our state distribution center, in our retail store for sale or online.
1: So, the items that uh, either are forgotten or are confiscated. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about confiscated first. Um, I'm asking you to to kind of describe what a TSA agent looks for and what they say to a passenger when they say, "Well, you can't take that on board."
7: Okay. Well, I do want to clarify that we don't we don't use the terminology "confiscated." You can. Okay. But, right. but okay. the TSA Just like I can the, use stuff. You can we use can stuff. Say confiscated <laughs> yep. stuff. Yeah. You have a little bit more uh, <laughs> leeway with what you want to say. <laughs> but um, but the thing is. That the items are actually voluntarily surrendered because you do have an option. You have an option to either send those items back home through the mail or you just voluntarily surrender them and they become surplus property. So when you're going through a TSA checkpoint and you have a pocket knife or a corkscrew or nail file or anything else that has been deemed an uh, object that could become a weapon or be used as a weapon, then that item, you have to make that choice. Is is it worth you missing your flight to to mail it off or do you have enough time? You know, those lines at TSA can be long, so you have to go back to the end of the line to be be screened. So you have to make a... it's a really like a decision, you know, right there that you have to make to either leave that item there and and then it comes to us for sale or be able to make your flight.
1: Now, some of these items, I mean, I read in a newspaper article of that uh, baseball bats, golf clubs, I can see how they would be used as weapons. But at the same time, those are things that especially golf clubs that people would want to transport. Mm-hmm. Is it just that they didn't? You know, surrender it or surrender is, is the wrong word. Put it up as something that uh, they would not take on board with them, or just what?
7: When you look at the items that are actually for sale, uh, they they actually could be taken on a plane, but they have to be taken in your checked luggage. Right, right You just can't take them into the cabin of the plane and that's for the security of yourself and the fellow passengers. so if you if you look at the list of if you have a, if you have any doubt in your mind, and and I've flown several times and I've had to look at the list a few times myself to say, hey, can I take this on or not? You always want to be really sure because if if you're a lacrosse player and that's your right. and that's your piece of equipment that you want to take on, you know, your stick then. And you need that. You better check it or else we'll be checking it out at the at the state surplus store. So,
1: see, I'm wondering why when you when you check in uh, some person holding a baseball bat or a golf clubs, the, you know, the, they don't say. You're going to have to check that rather than, uh, you know, that you you don't check it.
7: Well, I think their focus is more on the on the idea of, you know, where you can you can also check it at the gate if you choose to do so. Mm -hmm. But that could cost you seventy five dollars or whatever the price is for an additional item to be checked. But I don't know, you know, what's really going through the mind of the TSA when you when you come onto that plane or that, that line to be checked, they don't have time to basically look at everyone right, and say, hey, right, you don't right. want to use that. Basically, they tell you, you can't take that once you're already right. up there, and then it you know it's a last-minute decision you have to make.
1: Yeah. Okay, so what are some of... Uh, well, ask about some of the items and then some of the more unusual items.
7: Well, you get, like I said, sports equipment, um, snow globes. Now, snow globes are interesting because, what can you know, I guess you could throw one, at, but it's basically for the liquid. And they don't know if it huh. could be uh, explosive or not. They also have liquid restrictions on what you can take onto the plane and, and whatnot. Um, the souvenir mini baseball bats. you can't take uh, you can't take anything that like power tools or hand tools, hammers, things like that. you see a and surprisingly enough, you can't take a rolling pin. Onto a uh,
1: no, no. onto well, a plane. I don't know if that's surprising or not. I mean, well, any husband, any of, husband who's I been know. in trouble with his wife <laughs> might know that
7: You can a rolling pin can be used as a weapon. I don't
1: know. Do people use rolling pins anymore, <laughs> Troy?
7: I, I. I don't know, but I can tell you one thing. We do find them for sale at our in our in our store. You have
1: a wide array of uh, rolling pins. (laughs) We
7: we have a few. We have a few cake cutters, things like that. So it 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 does get interesting when you see the things that that people try to take on to a plane. And sometimes there's no rhyme or reason to to why they would have tried to get that on other than maybe. It would have put their luggage over the weight limit, yeah. and and you know they just thought, oh, I can, you know, take this uh, skillet and gridiron onto this plane.
1: And, <laughs> well, what are some of the more unusual items that you have? Well, we've seen we've seen
7: some. Uh, now we can't sell these, but we see like the uh, big crocodile Dundee knives.
1: Yeah, we they're see. Huge.
7: Yes, they are, yeah. and they're dangerous. Yeah. Um, we also see. We also see. Uh, Chinese uh, stars, the ninja stars. Yeah, yeah. And interestingly enough, we, we get the credit card knives where the blade is folded in, but you can fold it out and then the body of the card becomes the handle. Wow, I've seen a tube of lipstick that when you turn it out, has a blade in it. So things can get pretty interesting. And I think the most unusual thing that I would scratch my head about would be a, uh, a replica African spear.
1: Yeah. You, that maybe, was, maybe they probably should have thought about yeah, that ahead of time. Yeah, yeah. I don't
7: think there was a lot of thought put into that decision.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's get back to the sales. Well, I mean, obviously yes. those things are, are not for sale. No. 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 But items that are for sale. First of all, where, where's the warehouse? Where can people go? This is an hours and all that.
7: You can come to the state distribution center. Um, here in Harrisburg, 2221 Forster Street in Harrisburg. And the hours are Monday through Friday from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. Now, we've, you know, we've been stocking up and everything. We're um, we're, we're hoping that people will come in. Now, the inventory may be a little low because the sale has been in effect for a little bit, but it does end on Friday the 8th, and that will be the end of the half-off sale. Um, we're holding the half-off sale to show our customer appreciation. Everything is half price now if you have an item for a dollar then it's it's buy one get one free so you're still getting half price but Mm -hmm. we we won't sell anything less than a dollar
1: And there's no sales tax either.
7: No sales tax. No sales tax.
1: Now, people can actually shop online, right?
7: Yes, they can. If you go to GovDeals.com and type in PA State Surplus in the keyword search, you can find the items that are available through Pennsylvania's surplus um, surplus property sales.
1: So what are some of the items? Half price obviously is a, is a good deal to begin with, but mm-hmm. it, it sounds as if a lot of these prices are a lot less than what you would find uh, if you were out in a, in a store shopping for some of these things.
7: Of course. We have, we have power tools. For example, an angle grinder will go for like $10 and it's a name brand. to some of them still in the box and you won't find them at your local hardware store for less than maybe thirty dollars so we're and and on top of that you get the half off so it'll be five dollars so we're really we're really doing a lot here to to show our customers how much we appreciate them and how much we want them you know to continue to do business with us
1: so the state has made two million dollars off this uh and about 225,000 of that has been Mm -hmm. online. This is why it surprises... Well, that's this year. That's this Mm -hmm. year. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it it, it surprises me that other states, like New York, where, you know, LaGuardia, or JFK, that they're not doing this. I mean, Pennsylvania is making out. Well,
7: Yes, we are, and, and we're and we're glad to be doing so. Um, basically, the thing is, we've we've had since 2004, we we've been taking this property, and we're able to do so because of our federal surplus property program. And we have a program that is large enough to handle the volume of items. Some people's, some people in other states or some other states might not have the resources to process all of these items, to sort through them, to inventory them, and then put them out for sale and track their sale and and put prepare them for online sale so we do it we do a pretty good job we do a great job here in Pennsylvania of getting those items in sorting them and putting them out for sale either online or in the store
1: you know the state has a two billion dollar deficit you can't make two million dollars two billion I should say
7: two billion off of we're gonna we're gonna need a lot more All court right. screws <laughs>
1: <laughs> Troy Thompson's with the Department of General Services. Thank you very much for being with us today. Not a problem. That is a heck of a lot of corkscrews to make up $2 billion. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, Mark Bowden, uh, best-selling author. He wrote uh, Black, uh, Black Hawk Down. Uh, his latest book is the uh, Huey, 1968. And uh, he'll be in Harrisburg this weekend, but uh, we'll talk to him tomorrow.
0: Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, who has offered transapical mitral valve repair procedures for more than three years and currently serves as a trial site for 16 clinical trials. Information at PinnacleHealth.org slash MyHeart.